0: I invite you to turn me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, there is a handout. I don't know if you saw it on the way in. It's a, a little bit bigger than usual. It's a full, a full sheet, um, but just to let you know it's there, uh, apparently. Uh, yeah, let's take the time to go get it if you want. And uh, I, I figured it, it, it might be missed, so it's all right. Um, like I said, it's a little bit bigger than normal, uh, but uh, for reasons I hope you'll see. We're, we're dealing with such an important topic uh, that of uh, the matter of worship. <laughs> anybody else need Anybody else need one? Oh, Elaine! Al- Elaine's uh, uh, looking for it. James, you stole all the sheets. <laughs> All right. Well, let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 18 to 29. It's a passage you should be familiar with. It's a a passage that I preached through when I first got here uh, back in November. Uh, And if ever there is a passage that teaches us about the nature of uh, worship under the new covenant, I think this is the most critical text that we have given to us to understand uh, what worship looks like now that Christ has come. What does worship look like in between the two advents of our Savior? Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eighteen for you have not come to what may be touched, such as Israel came at the mount at the base of Mount Sinai, right? A blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, with a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, uh, the, the mediator, as it were, of Israel himself, said, I tremble with fear. But rather, you have come not to Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, not Moses, but Christ himself, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that blood of Abel that cried out for justice and judgment. We have a better blood, a better word. Therefore, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, who is that is speaking, it is Christ who speaks from heaven through the ministry of the Word, as you recall from our sermon series a few months ago. For if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Again, it is Christ who speaks At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is to say, the things that have been made. In other words, what is to be shaken? The things that have been made. Everything is to be shaken. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and as we consider the nature of worship, that we would not take this uh, as a thing lightly to be treated, but that we have come to stand before your presence to give you honor and thanks. Help us to understand the nature of worship, that we might worship you in spirit And in truth, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've considered in our ongoing series on the doctrine of the church, a very basic question. As the first four or five months, we considered that question, what is the church? Now we've moved on to our second question in the series, what is the church's purpose? What is it that we are called to do? And as you recall, there are three things that the church is called to do. What we might simply call the outward purpose, the inward purpose, and the upward purpose purpose. Uh, Two weeks ago, we considered the outward focus of the church's mission, that of evangelism and discipleship, taking into account that of the Great Commission. And yet we find that the church is not simply to be outward focused, it is also in one sense inward focused, as last week we considered the fellowship of the church. And that when you look at that Greek word for fellowship, it's translated in nearly two dozen different ways in our English Bibles, that word koinonia, and it's attending synonyms. We find that church fellowship is more than the potluck supper, it's more than coffee and donuts, as great as coffee and donuts are, but it also speaks of the common life that we have as the people of God. It is the word used to describe the diaconal collection, it's used, the word used to describe the Lord's Supper, it is the word used to describe the fellowship that we have with one another, that our joy might be complete as 1 John 1 tells us. Uh, But we would be bereft of a definition and understanding of the church's purpose if we were not to focus uh, and give attention to the upward focus that we have. That it's not just outward, it's not just inward, but it is also upward. We are called as a church to worship the living God. John Piper himself uh, puts it something like this, that missions exist for the purpose of worship. Um, That the church's primary focus, in fact, is that of worship. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by worship? What is worship? Why does our worship service look the way that it does? Are we simply uh, to gather together and sing a couple hymns and have somebody give a nice couple jokes and then we'd be on their way? Or is there something that scripture tells us as a more firm foundation that gives us a guiding principle for the nature of Worship. What I'd like us to consider this evening are three basic principles uh, that govern our understanding of worship, and after doing so, consider the elements of worship. And if we run short on time, we might leave the elements of worship for a later time, uh, but at the very least, we'll consider our three guiding principles now, uh, the first principle we might call is this, and I actually don't have it written down here, um, but it's something that, that, that permeates through the whole of this, this letter or, or the, this handout. The first guiding principle that we have regarding the nature of worship is this it's what we call the regulative principle. In other words, Scripture regulates the church's worship. Scripture tells us how to worship, Scripture tells us who to worship when you read the Old Testament, it begins to make more sense. Israel did not wake up one day as a nation out in the wilderness and go, ah, yes, we're sinners. We need to institute a blood sacrificial system so that we can have a picture of Christ who is to come that we might know that our sins might be redeemed because we are not able to account for our own deficiency in good works. Rather, what you see as Israel is brought out into the wilderness is this is something that is revealed to them. They are given a divine liturgy in a format through which they are called to approach the living God. And as the new covenant comes and supersedes the era of Moses, which is the prime concern of Hebrews, we are given basic principles that tell us what has shifted now that Christ has come. For instance, we do not long—we uh, no longer gather uh, to, to, to slit the throats of bulls and goats. If we did, we would need different carpet. Um, it would Be a messier service. There are things that have shifted. Scripture tells us what those things are. So Scripture must serve as our guiding principle. I can't sit there and say, ah, what do I think the Lord will want from us today? I know. You know, a rap battle. Uh, Interpretive dance session. That will really honor Him. Uh, What we have before us uh, is, when it comes to corporate worship at least, we need to have Scripture guide our understanding of worship. So that's, that's our first point. Here, here's a God who has declared himself to be holy, and he says throughout his word, this is how you are to approach me. This is how you are to esteem me. So we cannot have any discussion of worship apart from the word. But when we look at the word and what scripture says, we'll find a second guiding principle, particularly as it relates to worship under the new covenant. This is one of the the prevalent themes of Hebrews is that now that the new covenant has come, now that it has been inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a certain simplicity to worship. Uh, What we see in Hebrews is it's contrasted with the ostentatious nature of worship under the old covenant. Think of it as if you are uh, an Israelite of old, uh, and you're standing there at the base of Sinai, and you're given uh, the, 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 um, the law codes for worship. And what worship looks like, what do you have to do? Oh, uh, you have to, morning and night offer sacrifices. Uh, Those sacrifices, the types of sacrifices, are contingent upon how much money you make. If you're of a poor variety, you can offer turtle doves. That's what we see Christ's own parents, Mary and Joseph, offering at Jesus' own birth two young doves because they're too poor to afford uh, a, a sheep or a spotless goat. Uh, you also have a priesthood that is established to deal with these things, and the priests have a certain system of regulations that they are called to follow, and they had a system of high holy days that are given under the old covenant that they're called uh, to keep account of. It gets very complex and very complicated because it was all intended to be this scaffolding, this giant blueprint that gave Israel a picture of the person and work of Christ. And just as Christ comes, the scaffolding falls away. In the same way when a new building is being built, once the building is complete, so the scaffolding is no longer needed. Now that Christ has come, the sacrificial system has been uh, done away with. And so there's a greater simplicity of worship, you know, under the old covenant. If you wanted to worship the living God, there's only one place you could worship, and that is at the top Of the mountain in Jerusalem. As Jesus tells the woman in John chapter 4, there is coming a day when all those who worship the Lord will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And now that Christ has come, we find in fulfillment of uh, the promises given in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 18, and so on and so forth, uh, that whenever we gather We ascend not the heights of Sinai, not the top of um, uh, where the temple is located in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. Rather, we attend the heights of heaven itself, the courts of Zion, because we attend by faith, by the aid of the Spirit who has now been poured out and lavished on His church. And so what we find is that the the new covenant worship is not as ornate as we see worship under the old covenant. There is a simplicity. I'm quoting here the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. I have it here in your handout It really summarizes this particular passage in Hebrews 12 and 2 Corinthians 3. Those are really the two major uh, passages of the New Testament that help us understand what has changed with respect to worship now that Christ has come. This is how the confession of faith puts it. Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, the very substance of the things to which the law and the prophets testified, Towards when Christ was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Contrasted with what? Well, you have Passover under the Old Covenant, you have uh, the Feast of Booths, you have have, uh, uh, Shavuot, you have uh, the Feast of Ingathering, you have all the the, the seven Old Testament feasts, uh, not to mention all the other ones that you see, such as Purim uh, with Esther and all these others. Now it's been reduced, the ordinances have been simplified. The preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of Baptism and the Lord's Supper, as it says here, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory. Right, you don't come up here and see me wearing, um, you know, a big um, uh, vest that's studded with all these various uh, jewels. You know, always have the picture of. Uh, was it Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when they steal the Ark of the Covenant and he, he's, he's dressed uh, to the nines? You don't see pastors dressing like that. Rather, it's, it's more simple. One of the reasons why is I'm not a priest. We only have one high priest, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, not the local pastor. Which though fewer in number and minister with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them, in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. What is meant by that? What is meant is very simple. Under the Old Covenant, Christ is exhibited in types and shadows, in the Passover lamb, in the festival system, in the prophecies of the prophets that are riddles. They are proverbs where people are left scratching their head going, Who is the servant of the Lord of Isaiah? Now we have these things exhibited with greater simplicity. Christ has in fact come. Christ is the servant of the Lord. Christ is the Passover lamb who was slain for his people, who uh, though died has risen again uh, from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, for instance. It is now held forth in greater fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, not simply to the Jews, not simply to the nation of Israel, but rather it's now exhibited to Jews and Gentiles alike, and it is called the New Testament, or the New Covenant. So there's a greater simplicity to worship. That is why we do not have kind of the bells and whistles going on here. What is it that we see in our worship? Well, we see the singing of psalms, the, the praying of prayers, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments. It doesn't look flashy. That's because we actually have the substance. We have something of greater substance. We don't have to rely on those outward things. Rather, we walk by faith, as Paul says, and not by sight. So that's one of our guiding principles. So the first is the regulative principle. Scripture regulates the Lord's worship. Uh, Secondly, there's simplicity that characterizes New Covenant worship. And then the third principle it's so what we might call the dialogical principle. What is it that we mean by the dialogical principle? Well, again, how many of us grew up in a particular church context where we treated uh, church as something analogous to how we treat going to a football game or to the local movie theater? It's a spectator event. You show up, you buy your, your bucket of popcorn, you get your hot dog and your Miller Lite for $7.50. And then you just observe, and you watch. How many of us treat worship like that? How many of us have, at least in the past, treated worship like that? Where it's something that you observe somebody else do. One of the basic things that we must remember about worship is that worship calls us to participate. Worship is not a spectator sport. There is a dialogue involved. Uh, corporate worship is not simply a bunch of Christians getting together uh, in a rented space or a purchased building and having a good time for a few hours one day a week. Rather, it is the solemn assembly of the saints as God himself summons his people to worship. To quote our DPW, that DPW there means the Directory of Public Worship. It's a directory that... Um, uh, well. We'll go into the history of the DPW at another, another point in time. Uh, but it, it's a historic thing that we have uh, in uh, the history of Presbyterianism. goes back to the 17th century. Um, but this is quoting our uh, modern iteration of the, the Directory of Public Worship. Right there next to the Dialogical Principle says this, that the assembly of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other. Like, hey guys, let's get, get together, uh, just like we do on a Saturday having a barbecue or a potluck. But is before all else, speaking of public worship, it is a meeting of the triune God with His covenant people. And in the covenant, God promises His chosen ones that He will dwell among them as their God, and that they will be His people. This is one of the most cited passages of the Old Testament. One of the most quoted verses that you see reiterated by the prophets over and over again. I will be your God. You will be My people. I will dwell in your midst. Even John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and did what? He dwelt, He tabernacled among us. And so what we see for public worship, it's not just a loose ragtag association of people. Rather, it is a solemn event where the Lord Himself summons His people to worship on the day that He has set and established for Him to be worshiped, that of the Lord's day. Because the worship service is ordered according to this principle of divine initiative, it, that is to say that God summons his people to worship, uh, only ordained men or men training for the ministry may lead the worship service. That's how our director of public worship understands it. In other words, what we say is that the pastor and the elders are the worship leaders. You know, you got uh, you know, I'm not trying to pick on the, the, the big fancy non-denom churches. I'm, not, I re, I'm really not... Um, but you, know, you have so many friends who say, oh, such and such got hired you know, as, the, as the latest worship leader. Oh, oh who is he? Well, it, you know, it's, it's Jim Bob. He's 21 years old. He you know, has, has no, no theological training, um, but he, he, he does this. No, what we see here is that within the Reformed churches, at least, the worship leader is the minister. The minister is the worship leader. He is a minister of word and sacrament. What does the, the New Covenant worship consist of? It consists of the ministry of the word and the ministry of the sacraments. And it's not just the random Joe Schmo who can administer the sacrament. It's not just random Joe Schmo who can preach the word. It is somebody who has been set apart for that particular task. Because the pastor is the minister of the word, only he may discharge those word based duties such as the blessing that you see at the beginning of the service where there is the the, the call of grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a happy hallmark salutation. It is a declaration that grace and peace have come to God's people through the ministry of God's Son. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the closing of the service, the pronouncement, of the Lord's blessing, that, that may His favor shine upon you. In other words, the whole worship service is a service that is enveloped, it is bookended by grace and blessing. Because that's what the new covenant is. It's the great blessing that our sins have been dealt with through the work of God's Son. Even as God summons His people to worship, we are called however, to respond. We are not merely intended to be spectators. The interaction between God and His people is what is referred to as the dialogical principle. There is a dialogue. God speaks, we respond. God addresses His people in the call to worship. Uh, He gives the salutation and the benediction through the ministry of the Word. There's the reading and the preaching of the Word whereby God instructs His people. And there's the God who gives Himself to His people in the signs, and those things signified that of the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in response to God's address to His people, the people address God in prayer, and song, in the giving of our offerings, in hearing the Word, not in zoning out to the Word, that's why Hebrews 12 says, what, we, therefore we must give more careful attention to the things that we have heard, because if when Moses spoke and the people disregarded Moses and they were held accountable, how much more will be held accountable because we have one who has or who is speaking from heaven. Christ who speaks through the ministry of the, of the pulpit, the ministry of the word. And we also address God in our receiving and partaking of the sacraments. This sets the order for the basic elements of the worship service. You know, there's some denominations that think so long as Scripture is not forbidden certain practices, then those practices are allowable. Uh, However, within the uh, the Reformed faith, um, what, what we believe is that only what Scripture prescribes for worship is allowed in worship. Um, And scripture, we must recognize, allows for a great freedom in a number of what we call circumstantial matters. Uh, Here, uh, our director of public worship makes that important distinction between the elements and the circumstances of worship. What are those basic elements? Well, those elements of worship are where God addresses his people and where the people address God, that dialogical principle. And there is not an organization or institution on earth that can ban that from happening. No government has the authority to ban the preaching of the Word of God. No government on earth has the authority to ban uh, the giving of our offerings, or the offering of prayers, and so on and so forth. However, it's not just the elements that we have to consider, it's the circumstances. For instance, what time should we meet? How far far apart should the seats uh, be spaced out? Um, In the midst of a pandemic, Uh, How can we sing in a safe way to protect those around us? These are circumstances, Uh, and with respect to that, there is reason reason and wisdom that what what, uh, um, our confession of faith calls the the light of nature, Um, basic questions of wisdom that uh, give us insight into how to regulate that do we meet at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday or 10 o'clock? Do we meet at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Well, you know what? Scripture doesn't regulate what time you meet, but it does say you must meet. And so that's why you see different churches having different practices and meeting at different times, sometimes for even different lengths. But those are circumstantial matters. But those necessary elements that comprise the worship service can neither be added nor taken away from the worship service. Now, I say that, and we're going to talk about the sacraments, and um, I'm not trying to uh, insinuate that uh, the Lord's Supper, for instance, has to be administered every week. I'm a fan of it being administered every week. I know it's a practice here. I'm not trying to, to, uh, to get rid of it, but I, I also don't want us to think, aha, other churches who aren't practicing it weekly, you're not doing it right. Why? Because Jesus says, as long as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, or as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So, there is a great, a certain amount of liberty that's given in terms of the regularity of that practice in that part of the worship service. Uh, and that's going to be left to um, the customs of the region according to the various needs. So, for instance, I'm getting somewhat ahead of myself, but let me say this as one example. In the Scottish church, um, historically, they would only practice the Lord's Supper once or twice a year. Initially, it was not for any religious reasons, it was because they didn't have enough bread to be able to practice it on a weekly basis. All right, So sometimes there's, there are practical matters we have to take into account. So I don't want us to get snooty when we look at another church that has a worship service that looks somewhat different than ours, and us look down upon them and say, no, you're doing it wrong. What I want us to recognize is that there are basic elements that are required, and then there are basic elements uh, that are forbidden, And that there are circumstances that regulate the ordering and the regularity of those particular elements. Are are you all with me so far? Does that make sense? I want us to uh, have a conviction on why we do the things we do, but also uh, help us to be gracious when we look at how other churches might do things a little bit differently. When we go, you know what, that's okay, there's room for disagreement on certain things. Now if I were to come out and start juggling and have that as an element of worship service, you might go, you know what, maybe you shouldn't be doing that because... Scripture does not prescribe it. So these elements of the worship service, and go through these a little bit more quickly. We've seen uh, how we and why it is that we've divided these up. Now I have listed here the scriptural bases for these various elements where God addresses his people and the people address God. These elements. Uh, one of the basic elements we see is that salutation, where the worship service begins with God blessing his people. Isn't that how Paul begins every one of his letters? Isn't that how Peter begins his letters and all the other epistles? And also how Paul himself, what does he say? Read these letters in the church. And so there's a certain understanding that, uh, that the beginning is uh, of the worship service, there is a pronouncement of blessing to the new covenant community. That the blessings of grace and peace, those are not just fluffy terms. It's a declaration that sin has been reckoned with at the cross of Christ. It is a declaration that peace has been established now that sin has been reckoned with. Here it is, the judge of all the earth coming and declaring peace, grace. What good news it is that you hear it right from the very beginning. The gospel is preached before we sing the very first hymn. Then there's the call to worship. The call to worship exhibits God's initiative in assembling his people. This is why the call to worship, if you pay attention, if you notice, I'm not just reading a random passage of scripture on a Sunday morning. The passages of scripture you hear read are always in the imperative. Praise the Lord. Come, let us sing to the Lord. It is a divine summons using God's Word to, for God's people to assemble together in worship. And then we are called to sing together. The church responds corporately by the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that accord with God's Word. We have sister denominations that think, that, that think you should only sing the, the, the psalms. I am not of that persuasion. That said, I think we should also sing the psalms. God has given us a whole songbook to to sing and to pray. 150 of them. Uh, We should sing those, and we should sing the hymns that uh, men have written, uh, that that pass the muster theologically, uh, that speak of the person and work of Christ. These songs are not performance pieces. One of the things that you'll see when you study the Reformation is by and large the Reformation was a reformation of the church's worship. Uh, In the medieval Roman Catholic um, uh, structure of things. People would come and they wouldn't sing. They would watch a choir sing on their behalf. When the people came, they did not come and take the sacraments. They were considered not worthy. And so you'd have a priest taking the sacraments on their behalf. You'd have the prayers being offered up in Latin on their behalf. And of course, most people, the uneducated, didn't understand Latin. And so what it was, was that the, the worship service was an observation, it was a performance piece. You went and you watched the minister work or the, the priest work behind the screen, but there is nothing that edified you. You were not participating in any way. The Reformation puts everything back in the hands of the laity. Here, it is the congregation that calls to sing together. Here, it is the congregation that is called to partake and taste and see that the Lord is, in fact, good. Where the people are given both the bread and the cup, not just uh, the priest. So what takes precedence when it comes to congregational singing, it's not about this being a rock band. Uh, and again, let me just put it like this. I am in some ways indifferent to the the the, uh, the instruments that are used, but the idea is you're not coming to, to wait for the guitar solo or the piano solo. Rather, the music is to accompany the singing. I think we all have now experienced tonight what it is like to sing without accompanying it from time to time, especially when The minister, the worship leader, doesn't even know the hymn. Um, The piano is greatly helpful, but the music, whatever that instrumentation might be, uh, should not draw attention to itself, but is given to aid in the congregational singing as we are called to participate in worship. There are various types of hymns. Hymns of adoration that extol God for who He is and His character. Hymns of thanksgiving that extol God for what He has done. We have to keep both of those in mind, praising God for who he is and also for what he has done. There are the, the hymns and the psalms of lament where we cry out before the Lord, How long, O Lord? As we have not yet made it to the gates of heaven, so this is a church in the wilderness, a church that is suffering. And so we are called, in fact, as you read the Psalter, you'll find more psalms are devoted to psalms of lament than any other genre. It's, it's the Psalms are more people uh, going, when will this end? Deliver me, O Lord. And then, of course, there are the songs and prayers of confession. Forgive me, O Lord, for I have sinned. We have the public prayers. Prayer occupies a large portion of the worship service. This is because our Lord himself said this shall be called a house of prayer. You might notice that in our liturgy, we pray an awful lot. That is not an accident. I'm not trying to fill space and time. It is because that is what we are devoted to do, to pray to our God. You think of, have you all heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S-T? Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication? That is a good acronym, and it helps you understand the different types of prayers that we pray. We have the opening prayer of invocation, uh, adoring the Lord for who He is and praying that He would inhabit our praises. We have the prayer of confession, asking that He would pardon us our many sins. Uh, We have the prayer of thanksgiving uh, as we pray, thanking the Lord for His kindness to us, not only in creation, but also in redemption. And then we have our prayers of intercession as we pray for the needs of Christ's church, not only here as a local congregation, but Christ's church uh, throughout the region and throughout the world And we also have the prayers of illumination, where we ask the Lord to open our eyes to the things found in His Word. Unless the Spirit opens our eyes, we who are blind in our sin will not see those things that the Lord so clearly says. In other words, the totality of the worship service shows our dependence upon the living God. The centerpiece of it all is the reading and preaching of the Word. It is God's Word that prescribes the worship. It is God's Word that orders the general pattern to worship. It is God that blesses His people by His Word. It is God's Word that shapes our songs and gives voice to our prayers and worship. It is God's Word that explains the significance of the sacraments. This is why the sacraments cannot be offered on their own without an explanation. It is God's Word that directs our manner and purpose for giving And most importantly, it is the reading and the preaching of the word that instructs and tells us what we should do, that reproves and tells us that we should not do, that corrects and tells us where we have erred and that trains to tell us the way in which we should walk. It trains the church in righteousness. And as we have already seen over the previous weeks, the church is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. And so the preaching of the word is how Christ governs his church here on earth. Christ is not an absentee landlord. I can't tell you the number of times, even when I first got here where I've preached a a sermon, i still not knowing you guys and people coming up saying, uh, how did you know what I was doing? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. But this is what the Spirit does. You preach the Word faithfully, and the Spirit will convict where conviction is needed. Sometimes it makes people happy. Sometimes it makes them very angry. Either which way, the Lord is at work as He governs His own church. Therefore, we must give careful attention to the things we hear. Even hearing the sermon is an act of participation. Then there are the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism signifies our engrafting into the visible church, our engrafting into Christ. This is why baptisms are administered during public worship services and not in private. The Lord's Supper is a communal meal where the church feasts with one another by the Spirit on Christ's body and blood. It is a communion with Christ, and it is a communion with each other. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, the Lord's Supper ought to be administered and received during corporate worship. Under the ordained minister of the new covenant, and not in private. The offerings, even as we heard, as we've been working our way through Second Corinthians chapter eight, we heard just last week, two weeks ago, uh, that the Son of God, though rich beyond all splendor, for love's sake became poor, so that out of his poverty we might become rich. And this sets the model for even our own giving, uh, for the life of, uh, for that manner of life together that we love one another in spirit and in truth. And so we are called as the New Testament church, uh, to collect offerings for the work of the church, which includes not only paying the bills but attending to the material needs of the saints, not just locally but abroad. This constitutes the work of the diaconate. And finally, there's the benediction that concludes the Lord's, with the Lord's blessing of his people. The ordering of these elements might look slightly different and might differ even within Reformed churches, and that's okay. But however it is ordered, uh, that ordering should tell an overall gospel picture. As we are called to confess our faith and be instructed in the word on the basis of that faith, let us hold fast and cling to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in time of need, to hear God's word, hear Christ speak to his people and feed his people, and let us sing in response and offer up prayers of thanksgiving and supplication for all that he has done. This is the nature of Reformed worship. Again, this is a handout. I went through an awful lot, but also to let you know how simple this is, um, to to let us know what our goal is. Uh, I don't want you to be just a simple spectator, but an active participant and worshiping the living and triune God who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let us pray. Our Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that we would give careful attention to your word as we consider how best to worship you with humility and grace and spirit and in truth. We ask these things under the banner and the mediation of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.